ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. National interest is like smoke. It can be anything. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government. It was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, uh, the host of RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly, the host of the Voice Referendum Explained podcast series, and I'm joining you on the Gadigal land of the Aura Nation in Sydney. And PK, the Qantas fallout goes on and on and on and on. Since we last met here in the party room, the CEO, Alan Joyce, has quit, or was he pushed, bringing his retirement forward by two months. But just because the CEO has left the kitchen doesn't seem as though the heat has been turned down much on this Qantas story. Now the the Senate's going to hold an inquiry into the airline industry and they've got pretty big plans. The former Qantas CEO, the new Qantas CEO, the Qatari ambassador are just some on their invite list. So, you know, you can see where we're heading with this. We're going to be joined soon by Shane Wright, who's the senior economics correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, to get into this in a little more detail because there are a whole lot of elements to it. But one road leads back to the Albanese government and its decision to reject Qatar's bid to increase its flights into Australia. We're recording this on a Thursday morning and PK, the Transport Minister Catherine King, has stood up this morning and had another stab at explaining why she said no to more flights for Qatar Airlines. How did she go? Look, I don't think she went terribly well, to be uh, frank. I think there is a sense that perhaps it would go away, that it would run out of steam, this issue, and yet it hasn't indeed. Uh, I think the troubles with Qantas have kept it on the agenda. Now, those troubles aren't the government's problem, but they've become the government's problem, and that's kind of that's the way the cookie crumbles when you're a government, especially uh, when you're making these key decisions. So she had kind of avoided the scrutiny of, of a you know press conference or a, a media interview, but on in the Wednesday question time, it became quite clear that the opposition was going very hard for her very specifically. And so what happened is the government realised that, okay, she is being targeted, so she needs to do a big press conference to kind of put some of these issues to bed, which is a standard thing that happens when there's big pressure on, on a particular minister. So gets up super early on a Thursday morning to do a big press conference at Canberra Airport. The context of it is to release also a green paper looking at aviation. That's, a, I thought, was a smart decision actually from the government to go, hey, this is kind of the way forward. We want to have a big discussion about the future of aviation so they can make it bigger than just this conversation that's limited to Qatar mm. and these extra flights. So the Transport Minister, Catherine King, in some ways really contradicted previous comments she'd made. Uh, she denied weeks ago that the strip searching of a group of Australian women at Doha Airport weighed into her decision to reject the Qatar Airways bid to double their Australian flights. But at the press conference, she she said that those invasive searches were a factor in her decision. Here she is. I made this decision in the national interest and there is no one factor that I will point to uh, that 
swayed my decision one way or the other. Uh, in making this decision, I did have a national interest, uh, not commercial interests at play when I was making that decision. Uh, certainly, for context, you know, this is the only airline that has something like that. Uh, that has happened, and so I can't say that you know I wasn't aware of it, uh, but certainly it wasn't the only factor. And then the other factors not really outlined. So that's the Transport mm. Minister, Catherine Kin. We record this on a Thursday morning. It's important to mention there'll be a question time where no doubt that scrutiny will again be applied, so more may emerge. But Fran, are we any clearer? No, I don't think she's put it to bed at all because um, the, the context of that press conference and that questioning was that it emerged yesterday. The ABC had the news that the Minister, Catherine King, had blocked the bid for Qatar on the same day she signed a letter to those five Australian women who were strip-searched at the Qatari airport. So that was the sort of context of it. And then we heard her answer there. But, you know, this goes on. It may be the minister was convinced that expanding Qatar's presence into Australia was not in the national interest. But as you say, she's yet to explain that convincingly. So consumers, I think, are standing by looking on and going, hey, what about me? What about the out of reach cost of airfares at a time when my mortgage has just quadrupled and the, the cost of living is slamming me? It's this confluence of factors that's causing the government so much grief here and and it looks more and more like the transport minister made this decision well certainly without reference to the prime minister and some other ministers now that's her job she has the authority to do that but maybe she's missed the political implications of all this and you know hadn't sensed it's such a bad look the perception is She's favouring Qantas, maybe protecting Qantas, which is, you know, not the most popular bedfellow right now, is it? <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, and so I think this story won't go away. More will emerge. There is a Senate inquiry which is now going to unfold. The government will have to, you know, comply with um, requests for information and all of that. So, you know, it just, it's, it's just been a messy week, <laughs> I think. For the government, the prime minister is away, so the scrutiny didn't fall on him by the end of the week. We're going to revisit a bit of what all these issues mean. There's a huge economic story at the at the centre of it all too. But let's go to the other big story of the week, and the referendum on the voice to parliament countdown is continuing. Polling, as we say, isn't looking fantastic, and and while we have to take each poll with a grain of salt, and I certainly do, I always a little cautious about polling. The latest news poll conducted for the Australian newspaper has found support for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament has fallen to 38%. Uh, those no votes have risen to 53%. The same polling found that support for the coalition had reached its highest result on primaries uh, since the election. So just to be clear, on two-party preferred, the coalition is still absolutely trailing. But Fran... After the launch of the Yes campaign uh, and all of the, the noise around it, it would have been a disappointing result. What is it telling us? Yeah, the polls aren't looking good for sure. The Yes campaign, you know, had a bit of a, a kick in its step this week after they got a little help from a friend over the weekend when Australia's favourite King of Pot lent his anthem to The Voice. <laughs> John Farnham's beloved You're the Voice rolled out as the official soundtrack for the Yes campaign's advertising pu push. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a short film, really, but 
you know, will Australia's unofficial national anthem be enough to drum up support from those yet to make up their mind? And are there enough Australians still to do that? The latest polls, PK, suggests that the undecided vote is shrinking. And if the news poll is right and the yes vote is down to 38%, there's not enough in that undecided camp to make up that difference. So, you know, there's really a, a lot of work to be done for the yes campaign. They'd have to reverse this trend at a much greater rate than it's been falling. And that's been pretty fast. Yeah, look, it's a huge mountain to climb. And, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that you're the voice song and, and whether that was kind of a big moment. I think it was significant, I think, that, that John Farnham's song was handed over. Let's just be clear about who John Farnham is. Like he's a sort of huge legend with massive reach into, I think, middle and working class Australia, people who probably aren't engaged with these issues, well-loved, and he doesn't really share his song with people on political grounds. So him lending this for free is significant. But is that, is a song and a, a beautiful advertisement enough to turn anything around? Well, of course not. He was very gracious. I mean, he's not up to talking because he's, you know, been suffering from um, some kind of cancer. Or But he put out a terrific statement when he this was launched saying, you know, he, he wanted to lend the song that changed his life in the hope that it might help change the lives of Indigenous Australians. It was a very gracious statement from him, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and and has been uh, kind of really criticised too from some, and I uh, I find that a little odd. Um, I think people are entitled if we're going to have a, a a fair and respectful debate to make their own decisions. It is his song. But going back to the actual issue, some big movements this week. Peter Dutton making this pledge that if the voice is voted down, uh, that he will have another referendum. And that, that got a pretty strong response, didn't it, Fran, particularly from one particular person who's been really, really, really prominent in Indigenous affairs. Yeah, distinguished Professor Marcia Langton is the co-creator of the Karma Langton Report. She addressed the press club this week. Not only did she dismiss that promise by Peter Dutton to hold another referendum if this one fails and if he's elected, then he'll hold a simple referendum without any reference to, to the voice. You know, that was dis really dismissed by most senior Aboriginal leaders, uh, the Prime Minister too called it sabotage, for instance. Others said, look, he's just not listening to us. Marcia Langton, she's now urging the Labor government, the Albanese government, to have a plan for Indigenous Australians should this referendum fail, because without that, she fears a no vote could give governments cover for doing nothing for Indigenous Australians. And she was extremely critical in this press club address of the no campaign, accusing them of deceiving people. They're very clever falsehoods. They appeal to the... Uh long-held tropes of discrimination. You know, we've heard words like squalid, underbelly, maintain the rage thrown about. It's as if, you know, the frontier wars were still happening. It's uh, very uh, disappointing that so many Australians have been deceived and so we have an obligation to make sure that the undecided voters um, hear the truth. It was a really powerful and, and personal speech from Marcy Langton PK. She's been such a strong leader for First Nations people for decades now, you know, really at the at the forefront and the barricades for Aboriginal reform. She's brought so much of her scholarship and her energy to it. And she said in that speech that if this referendum fails, she will now step back from public life. And I'm sure that's not a statement that she makes easily, really. No, and and it would be devastating 
in fact, for her to to remove herself from that kind of advocacy. But can I just say, and I think it's worth, you know, we're about facts here, and I, I did see Peter Dutton on Thursday morning. He was interviewed and he said he called her a Labor Party supporter. Now, in terms of Marcia Lankin and her views, she's one individual. Uh, she's an activist and a very strong supporter of the Labor Party. I accept that. She spent years being attacked, can I say, for being uh, too close to the coalition government when she was giving advice. She is there for one reason. She fights for First Nations people. I just found that kind of extraordinary uh, to, to sort of call her or to depict uh, to reduce you know, her, really, in a sense. Yeah, to that. that's and it was, and it was, and there is actually no evidence of it. Let's let's stick to facts about people's work. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Shane Reich, senior economics correspondent for the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room. Oh, lovely to be back, marvellous Cavallis. How are you? I love that. <laughs> I forget your name for me, but Shane, hello there. <laughs> How can ah, I those press you, gallery years. <laughs> no. Shane, Qantas problems, uh, PK and I have been discussing that a bit, show absolutely no signs of subsiding. In fact, they look like they're going to be stirred up again with this Senate inquiry. The Qantas CFO, Vanessa Hudson, was elevated to CEO a couple of months early because Alan Joyce quit the scene under pressure. Would the government explaining fully why it made this decision on Qatar's application for extra flights calm all this down, Shane, or... Might it just exacerbate things at this point? What do you think? Well, they need to do much better in explaining what the hell they've done. So Catherine King, for instance, on Thursday morning, tried and failed to explain exactly the reasons for her decision. Now, you've got to step back one point, and that's the these sorts of decisions have been made by governments forever, and they've ne- never really gained that much traction. But this is, we're really in a bad a bad spot for the government, that is, in terms of the fact that Qantas is so on the nose and people are so fed up with Qantas. And flights are so expensive. I think that's the context here. That's right. Like if you've been looking through the inflation figures over the last 12 months, they have been skyrocketing. There's a reason, say, the ACCC maintains that Qantas and Virgin are the two most complained about effectively the two most complained about companies going around in in the country. So not willing to explain the reasons, the apparent closeness of the government to Qantas, like the kerfuffle around the Prime Minister's son having Chairman's Lounge membership privileges, just adds to the the appearance that this is looking bad. So (laughs) Qantas is copying it on the political side and the policy side, as well as the government copying it on the political and the policy side. And it seems that... There is a sense of digging heels in, yes? Is, is that a fair way to put it? Where, where do they want to land? <laughs> you, you and your puns. <laughs> Look, it's really, you can see it getting under the skin of Anthony Albanese uh, and in a way that he hasn't been really attacked previously on. Uh, so you can see that's, that's really rocking the top of the government. Catherine King has got her own problems, not just with the fact say, with Qantas, but she is way behind on a report into the amount of infrastructure spend that the federal government's under. You can see, yeah, the tensions are really growing. The Green Paper she released this morning says in when it comes to uh, international bilateral air agreements, we need capacity ahead of demand. 
and here we are, we have this decision which doesn't increase capacity when we know there is demand. Shane, you look at these things closely. Do you think you know why the government said no more Qatar flights? Because, you know, they're urging Qatar to fly now into Adelaide or Canberra or the Gold Coast. Some of the state premiers want them to as well. How do you understand the national interest as the, as the minister says it? National interest is like smoke. It can be anything. They won't define what the national interest is. So you go, is it to do with the abominable treatment of women on a Qatar flight in 2020? We don't know. And th this is like this has really exposed the whole problem around these sort of international agreements that govern air travel around the world, but it's also been exacerbated by the inflationary pressures uh, that are being felt by everyone. And Qantas's yeah. poor behaviour. Yes. Yeah. Yes, inflation, inflation, inflation is at the centre of it. Which brings me to a kind of related issue, actually, if we're talking inflation. On Wednesday, we received new national accounts data. It showed the nation's GDP grew by 0.4% in the June quarter. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, said, while there were challenges, Australia faced them from a position of strength here is. Uh, the Australian economy remains steady and sturdy in the face of unrelenting pressure. Uh, economic growth held up relatively well, despite the inevitable toll of higher interest rates, high but moderating inflation and continuing global uncertainty, particularly as it relates to China. That was the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, and he did say they expect the economy to slow considerably over the next year on unemployment to rise as well and really pointed to China as well. It's obviously government spin figures, but how do you see it? The main thing is that if it wasn't for population growth and some of these big projects that governments around the country are spending on, the economy would have contracted over the last three months. Households are just being whacked by what the by inflation and what the Reserve Bank's up to. I think uh, the, the most startling figure was the fact that uh, mortgage payers shelled out $24.5 billion in interest in the quarter, that which is a record, and they've spent 80-odd billion dollars on interest over the past 12 months, which is a, a, <laughs> a lot. It's doubled in 12 months. And then you add in what's going on to the rental market, the, the strong population growth, the absence of construction, the, the problems in the construction pipeline over the last 18 months means there's still not enough property there for renters uh, to get something that approaching uh, affordability for them. So Shane, so, we're in this, this thing described as a per capita recession, which I guess it means if you add all those all the people in Australia, including all the ones who've come in and boosted the economy, that per head we're going backwards, which is not news to people. This is really bad news for any government, isn't it, to have, you know, an electorate who feels and knows they're going backwards financially. It makes for very grumpy voters. What can the government do about it? Because on the housing front, which you just mentioned there, there's really no quick fix, is there? Well, especially if the Reserve Bank is, has got interest rates at a particular level, which by their own admission are contractionary. And one of the first areas that gets hit is the housing construction sector. And ultimately, you do need more homes uh, to take some pressure off that. Off that sector. Also, those higher interest rates will also hit those people who may be looking to upsize or expand their, their property holdings. So that will have some sort of effect. But at a government level, two weeks' time, Chalmers will announce the largest ever budget surplus. We haven't had a surplus since 2728, and this will be about $22 billion. 
in terms of the budget over the macro impact, it is taking money out of the economy. So it's not adding to inflationary pressures in that traditional sense. But finding a way to get people working in areas that are more productive, the government's got a whole agenda in that space. But really, you don't want to be doing too much when you're trying to bring inflation down at the same time. Because if you just spend money, and we saw this 2022 when the previous government gave everyone an extra tax cut, that added to the inflation that we saw at the end of last year. So less is more, but it's painful politically. Mm. The other big thing this week uh, is the second tranche of industrial relations legislation that was tabled in Parliament. The same job, same pay framework. The Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations, Tony Burke, says it'll just close loopholes to address wage theft and get some minimum standards for gig economy workers. People are like, you know, Uber drivers. Here he is. The problem that we've got at the moment is the only question the Fair Work Commission asks at the start is, are you an employee? And if you are an employee, there's a whole series of rights that you get. But if you're not technically an employee, all of those rights fall off a cliff. And what we want to do is turn that cliff into a ramp. Cliffs and ramps. Um, I'm not sure you can turn a cliff into a ramp. But, uh, <laughs> Sounds so simple put that to, to me. One side. <laughs> I, will, I will credit Tony Burke, though, with being a very good retail politician. I find that he has a good way of simplifying very complex uh, things, and this is a very complex piece of legislation. But he's got some some messages out. Business, though, not convinced. Shane, how is it being viewed? Oh, this is an assault. Oh, that's the perception from the business community. The same job, same pay. That has been an interesting argument, given that the business community effectively misrepresented the entire bill about, oh, we will have to, like, people won't be paid for their experience, which. It is clear this legislation does nothing of the sort. We could go back to the 60s in terms of this is an argument between labour and capital and whose share of of uh, the profits, uh, who gets that share. And that's that's the swing argument that's going on here. And this, ultimately, it is all about who gets that extra cash. Does it go to the labour hire firms? Does it to reduce the cost base of the overall employer or does this go to the, the uh, pockets of those who are working? It's, it's tricky time, though, isn't it? Because the business mantra is this will cost jobs. And, and as we've just seen, the national accounts suggesting that unemployment is going to rise. So that's tricky timing there. But just, you know, what you said, PK, I think about Tony Burke having some really good lines. Another one of his, I think, in reference to those, um, you know, ride share and uh, other kind of gig economy changes that he's making. He says it's got to be possible to have a 21st century technology without 19th century working conditions. Is, is it hard for the the business sector to argue with that, Shane? In the gig sector, particularly, because ultimately the consumer is saying, oh, I, I, I'm getting this service. But it is all too clear the people in that sector who are are being exploited. The evidence is just overwhelming just on how little they get paid and the the dangers that they get put in uh, to provide that service. But either way, right, I mean, Labor did take this, obviously not the detail to be very accurate, but the idea of this to the election, didn't it? You know, so Bidson's might run a campaign against it, but it's not entirely surprising that they wanted to go down this road with industrial relations reform. Oh, they were upfront about it. And of course, Albanese still has that $1 coin that he had about he loves increasing, that. He loves that. <laughs> increasing the pay rates. And 
before Phil Lowe at the Reserve Bank was worried about wage rises, he was complaining for years that wage wages weren't increasing enough. Uh, this went yeah. yeah, he banged Phil, on about yeah. that for a long he time, did. didn't he? He did. And we've got to this point. Anthony Albanese, there's one thing you were clear about from the election campaign, yet we are going to do do more in terms of workers' rights and getting them a pay rise. So yeah. it's not a surprise. No, not a surprise. No. But of course, people can have different views on it. Hey, Shane, always love having you on the podcast. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you two lovely people. Thanks, Shane. See you soon. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Well, the bells are ringing, which means it's time for question time, and this week's question comes from Troy. With the arrival of the yes-no pamphlet, this all prompted a question in my mind about voting age and the perceived capacity to make informed decisions. If young adults, coincidentally with a driver's licence, can't vote until 18... Should older Australians also be taken off the electoral roll once they've handed in their licence or perhaps have the privilege of voting removed for everyone at an average lifespan minus 18? Phew, Troy, I'm not (laughs) sure we're in the business of taking democracy out of the hands of people, are we, PK? I would always personally argue for more voting rights, not fewer voting rights. So I understand the argument for allowing, for instance, people over 16 to be allowed to vote, I think actually a strong case is made there. There's a big push we, for that, isn't there, actually? There is, and I'm very personally, you know, and and don't believe it ever in being partisan, but I think on voting rights I have very strong views and I'm not afraid to share them. Um, I do think that young people, I'm going to sound a bit like Whitney Houston, are our future and they should have... Um, <laughs> rights and 16 feels about right to me personally. I don't think we're there yet as a community, but back to the older people, I don't think you should ever lose your democratic rights. I get the point you're making though. And what I feel, but this is a total assumption, is that maybe you're sympathetic to the voice and maybe you've seen that some older cohorts particularly are perhaps more against the voice if you look at the demographics. And I do think that's a relevant point, that young people are generally more in favour of some of these things and yet they don't have their voices counted probably as much. You know what I'd change if I could change anything, though, which is not even in your question? I think the fact that in the NT and the ACT you don't have as... And David Spears actually raised this before on the podcast when he filled in for you, Fran, but, you know, have fewer, essentially fewer rights if mm. you count the double majority in a referendum. I reckon that's a really huge issue. Well, particularly like if in I this referendum, in the end, right? If I lived in the NT, uh, particularly if I was an Indigenous person in the NT, I would be red hot with rage that yeah. my my territory didn't get the, the same kind of status. So I reckon that's a bigger issue. Old people, look, if I make it, if I'm lucky enough, because it is lucky, um, if actually you're talking about life expectancy, Indigenous Australians don't live as long as non-Indigenous Australians. So if I'm lucky enough, and I might be, to live to an older age, I want my right to vote. Yeah. And, um, you know, just on the NT in this referendum, 32% of the territory population is Indigenous and they're, you know, being semi-disenfranchised in this. That's the way it goes. Um, Look, I think one of the arguments for uh, lowering the voting rate is to try and entrench in young Australians the intention to vote, the habit of voting. Because if you're 16, you're most likely living with your parents, you're living at home, you're more likely then to go vote when they go to voting day. Whereas a little later, sometimes 18, 90-year-olds, they've got, you know, they had a big day 
night, night the night before, and they're, they're, they're slightly down in the compulsory voting numbers. So I think that's one of the reasons for it. Um, but, yeah, I'm not in favour, Troy, of taking votes away from older anyone. people. From anyone. You're yeah. right, from anyone. More votes for all. I mean, not literally more votes because that would be weird. Uh, thank you. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. We're especially fond of the voice notes, which you can email to the party room at abc.net.au. Yeah, we really love those. And you can follow us, the party room, on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's it from us this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.